Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, this podcast is listener supported. If you want to support the show, you can do that at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. That's patreon.com slash other PPL pod. If everybody out there threw a couple of dollars in the hat every month, it would make a huge difference. It would make this show a cash cow. Patreon.com slash other PPL pod. You can also donate via PayPal if that's easier for you. There's a link in the sidebar at the show's website, otherppl.com. Okay, let's get started with the show. Let's do this. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jake, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Hey everybody, how's it going? I'm Brad Listy here in Los Angeles, California. This is the Other People Podcast, the Other People Show. Welcome to the Other People Show. There's been some technical difficulties tonight. I, uh, I just interviewed Julia Fierro, my guest. She makes her triumphant return to the podcast almost three years to the day after her original appearance back in 2014. She has a new novel out from St. Martin's Press. It's called The Gypsy Moth Summer. And she just came over. I had my microphone set up. I haven't touched them. Nothing's happened. I didn't change anything. And yet when I tried to record, there was a persistent buzzing. So I had to use my backup gear, my mobile recording unit, which thankfully I have, though uh, I am concerned that there could be some differential in sound, even though the microphones are pretty, you know, pretty nice. It's not quite the same as, uh, you know, the desktop version. So hopefully that won't be too much of an issue for you as a listener. Julia and I had a great conversation. She's just a lovely person. Very easy to talk to. Very funny. And uh, again, her new novel is called The Gypsy Moth Summer. That is coming up momentarily. I don't have very much to add. Uh, I did hear from a lot of you regarding my interview with Jonathan Saffron Four over the past couple of weeks. Uh, it's not too dissimilar from recent letters that I've been getting about episodes where there really is kind of a polarized response to the episode or episodes. I remember when I had Amelia Gray on and we were drinking scotch. Some people love that episode. Other people did not like that episode. And for the same reason. And I got a lot of nice comments about the Jonathan Saffron 4 episode, how much people enjoyed it, 
how much he has meant to them as a writer and to get to hear him talk off the cuff about his writing process and about his life and so on and so forth. And then I have received uh, other messages where people are like, he ate during the interview. Uh, it was passive aggressive. What was going on with him? You know, like just people saying things like that. A lot of, a lot of people commented on him eating during the interview, <laughs> which, uh, you know, the man was hungry. It's an odd time to eat, but what are you going to do? He's on book tour. He's trying to squeeze this in. His blood sugar's plummeting. Speaking of plummeting blood sugar, uh, this healthcare stuff really gets to me. I find that this issue triggers me, triggers some sort of anger in me that most political issues, even issues of great consequence, don't quite uh, do. They don't quite get to me at that same level of intensity. But when it comes to people's health, it really bothers me. It's such a fucked up thing to be playing around with as like a political football. You know, let's like this should be something we should all be able to rally around and figure out because it's all of us. So that's been bothering me. I've been tweeting about it and retweeting about it and calling and, uh, you know, emailing representatives. And then the other night I had this, because I always uh, debate with myself about whether or not to respond to Donald Trump's tweets. You always have this, like, fantasy of being able to come up with, like, a sick burn every time he says anything. Just something to just, like, shut him up. But, you know, the guy does, he does check Twitter compulsively. It does mean a lot to him, his social media feed. And I think there's something to the public perception element as it unfolds on Twitter and other social media with him. Where, you know, he's leveraging this stuff. So I decided the other night I had this epiphany that like every time he tweets anything, I'm just going to respond with the word douche. No matter what he says, <laughs> same thing with Mike Pence, just all of them. They tweet, it's douche. And I had this fantasy that I was going to create like a movement or like a meme. And I started to imagine it. Like, what if everyone just says douche every time he tweets, just immediately douche. But then, but it's like, it's like thousands of us that do this. I had, the, I had this, this theory in my head that seemed very convincing that the repetition of that would bother him. Like one time, no, nah, he's, you know, he's from Queens. He doesn't care if anybody calls him a douche. But if thousands of people, every time he tweets, are just like, douche, douche. <laughs> uh, maybe puppet would be even better. I was trying to think of like what one word, and, and I don't want to get into like super ugly language, you know, just something sort of playful, but also, you know, derogatory. <laughs> maybe puppet. Something. Douche. So otherwise, I think I mean, it's just basically working, trying to sleep. My son got us up at like three in the morning. We're still doing that. He's almost two. Every once in a while, he'll still get up in the middle of the night. Got to go in there. Figure it out. That's fun. Uh... 
Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. But yeah, I had a great time talking with Julia Fierro. We should just get to that. Let's get to the main event. This is Julia Fierro. Her new novel is called The Gypsy Moth Summer. It is available now from St. Martin's Press. And uh, I think you're going to enjoy this conversation. Here she is, folks. This is Julia Fierro. Back for a second time on this program. <laughs> And so I was having like, you know, blood pressure issues, like just stress issues. So we were like, you know, maybe we should try this West Coast adventure and, and, you know, have a healthier life. But the thing is, is that it's not like osmosis. Like I thought, you know, like I actually have to really like stop working so much. Buy some crystals get into it i know do pilates i did pilates a couple of times and like thought i broke my uterus <laughs> i was like what <laughs> it was same thing happened so to me <laughs> uterus yes i know i was like i i told my dad too i was actually at the brentwood mart you know that place yeah the country mart yeah fancy i had my lunch there yesterday my west coast lunch and my dad is deaf and also doesn't speak english well so i'm like screaming into the phone i'm like I think I broke my uterus. <laughs> Everyone's just like, I'm definitely terrifying some people here. But, because you know, like, everyone's like, how are you? They're like, hey, how you doing? I'm like, really? Do you want? And then I, like, tell them. And often it involves, like, Trump. You know, and they're just like, no, negativity. I didn't, I didn't want yeah, the truth. I know. Don't answer. No, but that's an interesting, I, I've had that same thought. Like people ask you how you're doing and like they don't actually want to know. They just no. want to hear you say fine. Yeah. They don't give a shit. No. Or maybe they're just, they're just not prepared <laughs> for honesty. Right. I don't know. Well, and the other thing that's been on my mind lately is. Uh, people are friendly here though. Is it? Yeah. I mean, yeah. Friend, some, yeah. Depends in pockets. Yeah. Like certain neighborhoods are friendlier than others. 
But I, uh, I was someone was saying to me, and I think I'm, you know, I'm sure I've talked about this before. But like certain phrases grate on me if mm-hmm. I'm aware of them. Like when people tell you, if like something's going wrong, and they're like, "Well, it could be worse," and you're thinking, "That's not, that's not fucking comforting." No, I don't want to know that it could no. be worse than this. The four, it's just kind <laughs> of like makes it's like makes you feel guilty. But not there, all, not yes. only that, but also grim. It's like, oh, yeah. it can be worse than this. Yeah. Thanks for the reminder. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I do like the the cheeriness sometimes, like the all's all's wait, is it all good? It's, it's all, all good. good. Yeah. It's all good. I can't do the all no. That is a cat that's a California phrase? I yes. It's all good. That is a California phrase. Okay. Like I've never heard anyone say that in New York. <laughs> you know, and I you can get killed in please New York. don't let me ever say that. I just but even though it is kind of reassuring when people say that, because like in New York, they're just like, fuck you, you know, but here they're like, it's all good. And you're like, really? You know what, really? You know what, when I lived in Colorado, you know what people used to say a lot? People probably say it there. What? They probably do say it's all good, but you know what else yeah. they say? Right on. So much right on. I know. I have to take a deep breath about that, <laughs> which is, I love that. I mean, I really love people. I love talking to strangers. I, I. You know, I talk to strangers all the time. The kids are like, what are you doing? But, um, you know, I feel a lot of optimism when I'm when I'm interacting one-on-one with someone, like a lot. Um, the larger humanity issue is another thing. But but still, the, uh, the it's all good. I don't know. I think, um, I, I mean, I really, so I really love the plants. Back to the plants. Desert plants? Succulents? Just everything here. None just, of them, no, most of them shouldn't even be here. I know, but I don't care. Yeah. I just don't care. You know, I know that we're abusing the water, <laughs> but um, I just can't believe, I've seen, so I I live, you know, in Santa Monica, a couple of blocks um, south of Montana, and above that is this, like, it's almost like Brentwood. It's like fancy houses with, like, perfect gardens and I walk by and I walk through there and there's no one anywhere except like the maids and the gardeners and I'm like you guys are doing a great job <laughs> kudos and, on the uh yeah arrangement I mean they're just so I'm like can I come hang out with you in the garden but the roses I mean i I think what happened was I lived in Brooklyn for 15 years after growing up in the woods of Long Island and uh, see this is the thing like Long Island, which I have no frame of reference for. I've never even been there, even though I've been to New York many times. But, like, there is some nature. You know, it's really really beautiful. I mean, the way that the Northeast is beautiful. Like, it's similar to the way, to, you know, the shores of Long Island, the kind of plants and wildlife and the trees are similar to Connecticut and... um, And I grew up on the North Shore on the Long Island Sound, and and my parents had found this house that had been almost abandoned. And, you know, we moved from like a more working class area in the middle of Long Island to this like beautiful little like peninsula, like an island called Lloyd's Neck. It was like just Lloyd's Neck. Lloyd's Neck because the, the person, um, now I can't remember his name, but it was the last name Lloyd, Lloyd who had oh, okay. basically settled, you know, many, many years ago. And um 
it was like, you know, growing up there as a kid, like my brother and I just played for hours in the woods, like, and there was a state park behind our house. It was like just acres and acres of thick woods. And, um, and actually there's a line in the, in my new book, the gypsy mall summer, which is not long Island, but not, not long Island. You know, I basically created an Island called Avalon. That is a smaller version. And, and, you know, the nature is similar to where I, this Lloyd neck where I grew up and, the wife is trying to, you know, this this white woman is trying, who is pretty much like the princess of the island, the prodigal daughter returning after being away for many years, kind of disowning her her inheritance. She's trying to convince her African American husband to move to this like all white conservative island, and he's a um, he's a Harvard trained landscape architect, and she's like promising promising him these beautiful gardens and she says something like it's like you know it's like america before the white man you know it's like and i remember as kids like you know we would close our eyes or we if we stood in the right spot in the woods you could really pretend that there was nothing there was no telephone you know poles it was just so um wild and i wanted to write about that and um that was the genesis of it the genesis of the book is so I um actually one of the first pieces of writing that I ever wrote before I knew you could be a writer um was I went to college in Washington DC because my parents wanted me to be a lawyer uh-huh. you know which is a very typical like immigrant you know first generation sort of so I went to um, American University and felt, and I'd always loved books, and they were very sad when I became an English major. And I wrote something in my freshman year. It was a little sketch of the Colonel, who's a character in the book. Um, he's the president of this aviation um, factory called Gritter, which is based on Grumman. Which is which used to be on Long Island and was really like the now, toast. Now it's out it. here. Yes, right. right. So um, right before it merged with Northrop, um, and you know um, that that man, it, what the colonel in the novel isn't actually a colonel. He's only a colonel by name. But my grandfather was a lieutenant colonel in the army, and so I wrote this sketch of my grandfather who was not as maniacal as the colonel in the book, but still, like, just a character. And he would do the white glove inspections of our bedrooms <laughs> when he visited, which was terrifying. And um, Wait, What does that mean? Like, he would put on his, like, white military gloves and, like, you know, check for dust. And, yeah. They do that in the military? I, I just assume they did. <laughs> he could have been, like, totally, you know... I don't know, making it up, but he, um, and he was, you know, charming and really an incredible person and, but, but really like, you know, just manic, depressed, like either really incredibly charming or just, uh, yeah. and, um, he, so I wrote that sketch and I put it away and then years later when I was at the Iowa writers workshop, I pulled it out turned it into a story which I'm using quotey fingers because I've never actually written a story 
only the first chapter. Like I have like a hundred first chapters that I was pretending are stories. And I rewrote it from like all the different characters' points of views and even the caterpillars and and then put it kept putting it away because I wasn't really writing for a long period in between my MFA and after my daughter was born and I was able to um get babysitting help and I can talk about this because I just had this op ed come out in the New York Times. <laughs> And I started taking Zoloft, and that really helped me have the focus to return to writing. Re- I, was it ADD? Like, is, what I, I don't even know. No. Zoloft is depression. Yes. So, oh. I I finally, you know, this actually is an LA story too. So I was doing this event for Penn Center USA, which you know is like this, you know, amazing literary organization in LA and I was doing a um author evening series but the author that I was paired with didn't show up because she was sick so I basically got to talk about myself for like two hours (laughs) and it was at Chevalier's the bookstore like right near here and um and there were all these emerging fellows um who are connected to this amazing fellowship program that Penn Center offers and um, it was a small group, and I felt very comfortable. And someone asked that question, you know, what? How, why do you think you're, you know, how, how did you succeed? And I have so many different answers for that because it is complicated. Like, I feel like the Sackett Street Writers, the workshop that I run, you know, I was teaching all of those classes those years that I wasn't writing and feeling really lost and lack of confidence, you know, or I'll say, oh, my husband too, you know, he really just, there's so many different, you know, um, for me getting into the Iowa Writers Workshop, you know, coming from people who, you know, my father didn't finish, he, he only finished up to fifth grade. So I needed I personally needed some kind of external permission to like take my writing seriously or even think about, but really a big part of it was that I, I had OCD my whole life, even as a child. And, um, I had been on and off different medications in my twenties and thirties. And it wasn't till it wasn't until I gave birth for my, to my second child and I was breastfeeding, so the pediatrician put me on Zoloft. And it was like this brain chemistry match, you know, for me. Um, because obviously it doesn't work, you know, for a lot of people. And the focus issue is really that I, the, you know, the obsess, the obsessive, obsessing and perseverating over countless, you know, rational and irrational worries had always made focusing hard well and this is the thing about um but not adhd no just purely like anxiety but but when it comes to medicating for mental illness of any kind something that that goes un uh unsaid a lot of the time is that everybody's brain chemistry is different and you've got to get the medicine to match your chemistry yeah it's not like a one-size-fits-all no and i think that's what you know it's hard it's hard because it's so easy to give up, you know, especially since going on and off a medication is uncomfortable and 
can affect your mood. It's like work. Yeah. You know? and yeah. It can be dangerous. Yes. Definitely has to be done under the care of a psychiatrist. Like I, I think a lot of people go to their primary care physicians and get medication, which is risky, you know, cause they're, cause they're not as experienced with medications and, but I had tried so many different medications and I had always felt like I was medicated, which I didn't like, you know, like they were more sedating and then with Zoloft, I mean, I don't feel like I'm on anything. I just, I actually feel more like myself than, which is hard to explain, but I, I had wanted to write an essay about how. Do you have any extra? <laughs> no, I hoard it. I'm ready. Cause also I'm like, you know, I gotta have a little extra just in case the end of the world actually yeah. does occur. You need a stockpile. I mean, I have I, to have my earplugs, my Zoloft, and coffee. I feel really. like I feel That's like it. I need to. Uh, I sometimes have like I need to get some jugs of water for like the big earthquake or like the shit it's the fan with like North Korea, oh. like whatever the case, like canned food. I think about that. I shit. got some of that stuff Do since you? I moved to LA. Yeah, I, I got get... like an earthquake thing. Yeah, my mom always tries to give me like earthquake kits. Does and, she live here? Uh, yeah. Yeah. So it's I mean, like I got one for my parents too. Did you? Yeah. Um, Wait, did they live out here? I moved them here because they're so they're older. Oh right. So they're like my babies. Well, I got to take care of them. Are they in Santa Monica too? They're in the valley. I stash them in the valley. Good for you. Yeah, Santa Monica. Come on, but that's a good place. It's like paradise. Yeah. Too expensive. Right. But um, my dad loves it because it's just like Southern Italy. He goes out at noon and like sits under the fig tree. Uh-huh. You know. Wait, where we t- did we talk about this the last time? We're in Southern Italy. Uh, Tremonti, which is near Salerno. Okay. I mean, Tremonti is probably on maps now, but you know, it's it was like a nothing town. But beautiful. Yes, it is really beautiful, and now there's all this agriturismo, so like people <laughs> go and pay to stay on farms sure. and work on the farms, like which my dad just thinks is amazing, <laughs> you know, yeah. including the organic stuff. Like he, he goes on and on about, we, we were organic. We were organic because we didn't, we wanted the fertilizer, you know, but, um, but I wrote this op-ed a couple of weeks ago for the New York times I didn't even really know exactly what an op-ed was. Yeah, how does that even happen? It's a personal essay. Okay, but you write a personal essay. How did you get it in the New York Times? Well, you know, I have to say that social media for me is just, it's like endless opportunities, you know. And even though it's really authentic, like I really need my social media friends, and I consider them friends, um, you know, I and so I wrote on Facebook, I was like, I'm working on this essay, like sort of as like a baby step because I do come from people who, you know, probably should all be on Zoloft because we're all obsessive compulsive and anxious and they've really, we've suffered, but you know, my parents and there is, you know, I think they, there is still a stigma and they fear that, you know, and so, um, it's hard, you know, uh, Almost everyone in my family is obsessive compulsive, but how does it manifest? Mostly the worrying and perseverating. So not what as per, much. What is perseverating? Mean it's for like you? obsessing, okay. like just the same thought, just like cycling and cycling and cycling. You know. Oh God. So not as much of the rituals, 
you know, like flipping which, the light switches. Yeah. And oh all. well, that. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, that's a good one though. How did you know? Did you know that no. was my personal favorite? Unless, unless I'm drawing on some subconscious. That memory. was something I did as a child, the flipping the light switches. Which if you, if you if you grow up with parents like my father who grew up during the war with no electricity, they're like, "What are you doing? You're you're wasting the electricity." And I'm like. I'm sorry, but I have to flip every light switch in, in, as I walk into a room five times, Dad. And they were like, "Yeah, no, cut it out. Got to stop." You know, they're like, "The bill is going to be so high." But um, but that you know, I I wonder sometimes if like compul. I wish I had some more like rituals, but. Um, but so I posted on Facebook. I'm working on this essay about how Zoloft has made me a better writer. And, you know, because one of the reasons I avoided going on medication for so long in my 20s when I was really suffering, I mean, it was, you know, just exhausting. You know, just the all-day obsess. It's more anxiety, you know. But, I mean, doesn't, like, doesn't, like, the wear and tear of that make you depressed? Yeah, I mean, it's... It's like this, it's a, it's a real burden, you know? And also like I'm, you know, I was often aware of how irrational my, my worries and obsessing was, which makes you like loathe yourself. Cause you're like, I can't stop this. It's like bad on top of bad. Yeah. You're like, stop, you know? And then having children, you know, it's what's rational, what's not rational to worry about. Like, you know, swine flu, I was pregnant during the swine flu, you know, that was something, and that's what you know, kind of led to cutting the focus and cutting teeth, which is a lot about parenting and fear. My first novel, but so uh, somebody that I know, an acquaintance, you know, emailed me, and she works for the New York Times, and was like, "We're interested in seeing this essay." And then I was like, "Oh, I should finish it." <laughs> that's a good. That's a good uh, incentive, right? And and she really worked with me on it so much, and. And made it so, you know, authentic to me because it was really about, it was really about fearing that medication is going to take away that part of you that makes you unique, you know, the creative part. That's a, but that's a very common fear for, I think, everybody who's going to be taking those kinds of medications, but especially creative people. Yeah. It's like, oh, is this going to ruin the creative thing? Is it going to somehow stifle that or, you know, uh, dampen it? And also, I think we idolize these artists, you know, these very romantic figures who suffer. Mm-hmm. Like, for me, like, oh, God. You know, like, I feel like sometimes when I look back on the on the writers that I loved in college, it's like, what? Yeah, you, know? you can romanticize it. I was, like, obsessed with Dostoevsky, who was, like, so anxious and disturbed and obsessive, you know. And you can, and I could see it, I can see it now in his writing. You're like, oh, you can see. Of course, when I read Dostoevsky's novels in college, I was like, these are perfect. But now it's almost like you can see the obsession, you know, in the structure, in the... Um, I feel like there's something to be gained from rereading writers who had a big impact on you in your youth, like every 10 years, just to see how you've changed. I know, I'm almost too scared well, I guess maybe sometimes I want to preserve that relationship. Right. Even though there's some writers that I've read that I'm like, oh my gosh, this is better. Like who? Like Fitzgerald. Yeah. You know, like I read 
the great Gatsby a couple of years ago. And I was like, Oh, this really is as good. He's fantastic. <laughs> and, um, and also, you know, reading with my son who is, he's like twice the obsessive reader that I was probably because he doesn't, my parents had the TV on like literally every second because <laughs> it was educational. Of course. So I know a lot about cop shows, hence my serial killer obsession. But he reads like I, you know, it's it's like his haven, the same as it is for me, because he's also obsessive and, but you know, happy, you know, because he can talk about it. So I couldn't really explain it to my parents as much. But it wasn't an o- emotionally open world that I was growing up in. Right. Know? But you seem emotionally open. Yeah. With, I mean, have you worked on it or is it, is it just like it flowered? I like- think that I spent the first 25, 23, 25 years of my life just completely like clamped down on it. And that was exhausting. And then because I knew it wasn't normal to be so emotional and so, you know, just fearful and even interested in everything, you know. And then um, I met my husband very young. I was 22 or maybe 21. Oh, my God, I can't even remember. And he was like this, I, you know, he really saved me in many ways. He just was the first person to, he he grew up in a very emotionally open, loving (laughs) house and which was almost scary i was like ah. like the first time we one of our first dates oh my god he kill me if you knew i was telling this but i'm just gonna say it we watched cinema paradiso and he like cried a little and i was like oh my god i can't be with this guy he's like openly emoting and then of course that was good and healthy and um and but he really, like, I had kind of surrounded myself with the kind of people who are actually, like, the teenagers in the Gypsy Moth Summer were doing a lot of drugs and going to raves and just not... Were you a spinner? Um, no, you know, I, I went to a lot of raves to dance because it was the only place you could go where you weren't going to be, like, kind of, like, humped on by boys. That's so gross. I know. So and so... <laughs> It was like this open, like we used to go to raves on like Randall's Island and, and is that the Bronx or Queens? And it was just amazing to dance for hours and hours and not be touched. Why? Why Why was nobody touching you at these raves? Because like you get guys of a certain age and of a certain persuasion fucked up on drugs and alcohol or even not. Yeah. And they get on a dance floor and then they just like start rubbing on people. Yeah, I know. It's basically like a, and I was like really <laughs> thin and and hot you know which is also another interesting thing being in LA in your 40s having been a hot thin teenager it's very confusing (laughs) a lot of people are like wait you're married to him because my husband's cute you know and I'm like yes and I was so hot when we met like you couldn't even believe it but um you know it's weird I I feel (laughs) I feel my youth here uh Maybe it's more pronounced, or maybe it's just the age that I'm at. But like the other night, I was walking over to a friend's house, and I passed these young people. They're probably like 24, 
they were standing outside of an apartment building and they were smoking a cigarette. There was a guy and a girl and they were talking. And I walked past them and I kind of just smelled it. Yeah. And you almost threw up. Yeah. <laughs> and then I puked. And I was like, God, I miss my youth. No, I was like, uh, I was like, I, I just, it just, it just brought it all back. Yeah. And I was like, it's never coming back. That's what I always think. Yeah. Like, it's never coming back. It's gone. I mean, for me, it was so unhealthy that like, I am so happy to be old. How unhealthy now. did it get? <sighs> like Sid and Nancy. Well, unhealthy? I didn't No, no. I, so I went to the raves, but I didn't do the hard drugs. You didn't. Because I knew I was not emotionally stable enough. To handle another reality because I already like didn't trust my own reality. Right. Like for me. Like so, what does that feel like? I want to ask you this. Yeah. You, you don't like you're self aware. Like there's a deep level of self awareness in you, so you're aware of what's going on. You know it's fucked up. You can't stop it. There's like right. a self loathing component, and then you're in this like uh, social scene where people are raving, and spinning, oh, and doing hard drugs, but you have enough awareness of your own mental makeup to be like I can't go there when you say that you don't trust your own reality as a sober person right what does that what does that mean how does it feel well you know I mean now I do even though today I got this really great review of the gypsy mall summer in congratulations. The Chicago Tribune. congratulations and I read it and I was like this is a bad review and then my husband read it and he's like this is amazing and I was like wow even on Zoloft, I, I, it's hard to trust myself, you know, especially with praise. <laughs> but at that age, you know, I think it was more like I, I really have always had a certain like self, you know, a certain composure, external composure. Like I was a dancer. I was a gymnast. I was in, in theater. So I really feel like the first 25 years of my life, it was kind of like a play, you know? And even though like at those raves, I was terrified, like watching my teenage friends, like their jaws all tense from like the, whatever was in the <laughs> ecstasy and like people uh -huh. making out and yeah. just people being really sick and thinking like, I shouldn't be here because I'm an extremely fearful person. You know, I just, I thought, you know, I think everything at that age was like, oh, this is what I should be doing. The should. Like, I don't know if I really did that much that was actually enjoyable, you know? It wasn't, was I don't your, know, I feel your, like I probably belonged with, like, the nerdy kids, but I wasn't hanging out <laughs> With them. I, I was kind of the same way. Yeah. And like there's a there's an intense... Grades were not very good. Really? In yeah, high school? I was like a B minus kind of... That's getting by. I think it was the focus stuff because I was so anxious that... I mean, I read a lot of books. I was like the only person in my English class reading the books. And then I asked if I could go into the AP class and they said, no. What? I know. Any kid who has the gumption to be like, I want to be in the AP class should be let in. I know. That was kind of a bummer. And then when I published my first novel, I was like, hey, I belonged in the AP class. <laughs> I did the same thing. <laughs> I did the same thing in, in uh, sixth grade. I wrote a letter to my guidance counselor. In sixth grade? <laughs> petitioning to be elevated into the AP class. And, yeah. And it worked. Oh, and they now let, look at you. They let me in. <laughs> I know. I had this like 
terrible. I mean, I think one of the reasons I was so thin was I was a chain smoker for like 10 years. That'll do it. As a teenager through college and... But, you know, I can't keep going on like that. That's but, rough. Uh, Smoking is the worst. I mean, yeah. But also the best. But, I know. I had to, like, basically have children to stop. <laughs> it's, the, it's a great reason. And then after you come, you know, I like, I had a cigarette, like, after many months, you know, or whatever, after my... And then you're like, this is disgusting. This is incompatible with breastfeeding. I don't even know where to <laughs> ash. These kids are in the way. I know. They're just poison. <laughs> but it was really like a OCD sort of. And also, I, I it was something to do. Yeah. It's like parties. You know, exactly. And, yeah. I, that's because like you can step outside into a smaller yeah. group, find your little tribe, have like actual conversations yeah. with the other two people who are smoking or you just we have were some... all smoking. It was so bad. It's gross. It was disgusting. But I'm, I was, you know, I was from Indiana. People still smoke oh, there. Oh yeah. Like it's like, it, like I think you can still smoke indoors there. And yeah. Like, you know, yeah. In bars. Indiana. Wow, that's why you're so nice. Is that what it from is? From the Midwest. Are my kids going to be fucked up? By, you know, like we're raising kids in Los Angeles. Is it possible to? Uh, no. For the Midwestern thing to rub off on them. Totally. I hope so. Yes. Because yeah. I, I honestly do appreciate the goodness of like that there is such a thing as like midwestern values oh totally people are so fucking nice there i mean even like the first time i met jay ryan i was like hi you're from the midwest even before he published his book right you know i with the word midwest i often i feel like i'll talk to people like cashiers or like cat you know just people and i'm like are you are you from the midwest and i feel bad asking because generalizing and they're they're often like yeah like kind of shy about it and i'm like you're the best you know <laughs> but um, there's, there's there can also be like some menace to it like yeah it's uh, hiding a it's lot a, it's of like you're either from Min- you're either from minnesota or a serial killer or both <laughs> but i you know the thing too is i feel like the I've, I've gotten into this train of thought before with regard to the south because i feel like the south there is a social ease that i am envious of when it comes to like just having people over. Yeah. Have your neighbors over for like a gin and tonic. Like that's easy in the South. In Los Angeles, it's like, do we really know them? And like, do, we, do you think they want to come over? I and... feel like people here are so social though in a certain way. Like when we first moved to LA, especially in Santa Monica, you know, like there were like play dates with like so many families and the kids were just running around the block. And I'm like, they don't have their shoes on and there's a homeless guy on the corner and everyone's just like, what a, you know, um, I like the uptight people. Just like, a, I mean, I guess maybe my wife and I like need to be better social. Like I shouldn't say that my wife is actually very it's hard good to social. get places here. And also here there's the, um, there's like the, there's, <laughs> how do I say this? You know, you hear people saying often like, love you, like, you know, uh-huh. you know, just going to call you yeah. like, and then they just, you know, it's not ever happening. I hate that shit. I know. I mean. I take people seriously when they say that. Yeah. I'm just so nervous about like imposing on somebody that I'm scared to even ask somebody to come over because what if they come over only because they feel sorry for me that's really pathetic, or then you Julia. invited them and then they feel obligated and it's like i want you to come over if you want to come yes over. but how do you know but see <laughs> that's the not trusting the interpretations and this is why actually i love writing fiction because 
And I always and often, or the only books I've published, the two books, are that alternating third-person point of view where you can see inside. It's like like TV series. Like you see inside one person's head, then you jump to another because in real life, you know, as much as you know somebody, you never know what they're really thinking or feeling. And that is in some ways good, but also like kind of the crux of the existential terror loneliness yeah so in fiction you can you know you're like the all-seeing writer who sees everything and everyone's interpreting the same things differently um and there's so much misunderstanding and yeah um you know my husband and our oldest children and almost all of our friends are couples (laughs) that are oldest children weird and we are really uptight it's like the same level of uptightness that's that's interesting it's gonna be like as i think about that with my daughter i'm like is she gonna be i guess it's unavoidable you're the oldest like there's certain i mean energy I, i think personality definitely like my son's temperament is like the crazy middle child even though he's the oldest you know yeah but you know there's been i mean there's so many books that have been written about the sibling order and you what know. do you what do you think I where do you think I fall in the pecking order? I don't know because the Midwestern stuff kind of it's kind of like a fake. What do you? How do I strike you? If you're, if you're looking, am I? Eldest? I would say oldest, Middle. or maybe older sister. I have an older sister, <laughs> <laughs> who you modeled after a little bit. I guess That's so. why you're so great and I, and because I have, you're have part a, woman. Well, I grew up with two sisters and a mom. My dad was around. I mean, he just worked a lot. Right. But I had a very, I feel like I had a very female upbringing in a lot of ways. Right. Yeah, you got it together. I hope so. It's all, yes. but not really. I mean, kind of. You need of, to call your sister tonight and thank her. I need to call my sisters both more. Yeah. I'm not a good phone, but like, this oh, is I the, the I fucking hate the phone. That's what I love about our cell phone culture is I never have to answer my phone. No one expects you to. And yet I've been told, I mean, because I do this. I can talk. Right. I'm, I'm, I like to talk. I'll have a conversation. But it's like, uh, you know, I, I think about calling a lot of people, like friends of mine, siblings, and it's like, are we going to really, for an hour? There's a lot of anticipa- anticipatory anxiety. Yeah. It's like a performance thing. But you know, I, with our first podcast, which I totally enjoyed. From a distance. But it's harder for me on the phone. Me too. Because you can't see facial expressions and gestures. I can't tell. You interrupt more because you're like, you can't see, you can't oh, like, yeah, there's I'm no so visual. No, but it's like there's no visual cue in a conversation over it's the hard. phone in an interview context. It drives me crazy. Yeah. So it's like you have to, like, I find that, I, I find that the interviews are a, a bit less interactive usually because in order for it to work, both parties have to be super yeah. listening, like super intensely. Yeah. And uh, otherwise you're going to miss it. You know, I, I haven't done as much therapy in my life as I should have. And now that I have Zoloft, I'm like... Have you done stand-up comedy? <laughs> no. You should. Have you ever done The Moth? Um, No. That seems kind of terrifying. It might be. But I feel like you, I feel like you... People ask me that. You know, I think I'm, I'm comfortable and funny when I'm not intending to be. But if I got up there with the purpose of making people laugh, oh my God, yeah. no. Yeah. But my sister-in-law is actually a very well-known comedian. Who? Rachel Feinstein. 
I, I wish she I knew. She has been. I think we talked about this. Yeah, she and and since then she's like really, really. You know, she was in Trainwreck. She, her best friend's Amy Schumer, so they're in a lot of things together. She's been on on the Inside Amy Schumer. My daughter was on it Inside Amy Schumer. No shit. She was on <laughs> the last episode. Um, Amy asked if she could interview her. That's fantastic. And so they flew her and my husband to New York. It was right after we'd moved to L.A. And she did such a good job. And she mostly talked about how she hates dresses. How she's not sure if she wants to get married and have children, but her brother wants to have a lot of babies and she's just going to take one of his. (laughs) Which I was really impressed with that. I was like, wow. It's a good scheme right there. <laughs> uh, she was very, but she's very shy in real life. So when people meet her and they know that she's been on the show and she was also in a music video because our friend, it's just because the people we know are creating these videos or have a show. Like she doesn't do in her, like any auditioning or right. not. Um, yeah, but that shit is like when you live in New York and LA, like that stuff's like floating around. Yeah, people are like, does she have, a, does she have an agent? And I'm like, no, but do you want to get her one and then bring her to all the auditions? Like, I'm, I'm too like narcissistic and like busy with my own stuff. You know, <laughs> can't, I can't drag her career along. But she's too. very shy, like really shy. And so when people meet her, I think they expect, you know, they're like. Oh, I have, you know, I've been wanting to meet for so long and she like won't even give them eye contact. And I'm like, oh God, you know? Right. But, um, yeah, we like, I think she just ki- does not care. She's like, whatever. These kids who really take, like there's a, there's a genetic thing to performance. Yeah. And I see it in LA cause I have, you know, we have school friends whose parents are actors or whatever. And yeah. then you see their kids. Cause like we, my daughter did this little theater thing where they do like Annie or whatever. Yeah. My and, son does that. He <clears throat> loves it. Oh, my God. He's the performer. Oh, he is. Okay. Yeah. But, like, there are kids where you're like, wow, the apple really doesn't fall far yeah. from the tree. Like, they just got it. And then my daughter got into it for a minute. And then someone came up to my to my wife and was like, you know, like, Francis Ford Coppola is doing an, uh, like an open call audition. <laughs> if, like, your daughter wants to go and just do it. It's just it's just for fun. Like, no pressure. And so then fun? No. <laughs> we, we had this, like like, conversation where we're like, like she'll kill us if we don't take her, and like she finds out later that she had a chance to audition for Francis Ford Coppola, and like it was like this long drama. And we were yeah. like, like we would be irresponsible parents to like not let her have the experience. That was kind of why when when Cece was going to be on Inside Amy Schumer, yeah, we were like, let her do it. It's fun. Yeah, you know, it'll be a fun. But I, it was. I think she, it was actually very nerving, stressful. <laughs> Yeah, you know, my, my daughter my my daughter went into the room with Francis Ford Coppola and just like froze and he was <laughs> like and he was like okay thanks very much thank you so much yeah I mean I <laughs> wasn't was sure career. what was gonna happen and I was too nervous to go to New York like thankfully I stayed at home with our son and you know because I just I was so nervous yeah. for you know I just didn't want her to because I know she's you know like the rest of our family anxious and wants to please people and but um but my son has found a real he loves theater and it's and you know he's he's 10 life is getting harder socially and 
he's like me. Like, he wants to be loved. You know, like, we we meet people, we're just like, I don't care who you are, if I'm never going to see you again, you know, I want you to love me. (laughs) (laughs) And it's, you know, and to watch that happen, you know, watch him, like, want that is so terrifying to me. And there's nothing you can do, really. You know, it's... And he, so he's, he was in a play once upon a mattress and it really helped his, his self-esteem and it was a really great thing. And I think that's really the, like, that's the only thing that matters is like, that's our job as parents. Like literally it just boils down to, it is our job to make them like preserve some kind of positive feelings towards themselves right you know it's so hard god damn it i know why isn't it easier i don't know i think it's harder um i think i don't know do you think it's harder with the internet i do think it's harder i mean as they get into there's just so there's infinite comparisons i'm gonna be the dick dad who doesn't let my daughter have a smartphone yeah we don't have a smartphone my son does not have one and all his friends at 10. Right. Have them. I'm not doing that. I mean, may, like, if maybe, you know, if she wants to text me, she can text me, but nobody else. Yeah, they they have iPods, and they have all their aunts and uncles' numbers, so they just bug the hell out of them. <laughs> just all, you know, whenever. Do. Yeah. Yeah. And, That's um, okay. You know, I didn't even realize you could send GIFs, or however you say it on your phone, but um, in text messages, but... Beyond that, I think I think actually that it would be too much social pressure, you know. Well, yeah, obviously. Well, and kids feel at liberty. I mean, just like just like adults, you know, they feel at liberty to say things that they would never say in person, you know, when they're yeah. at home and they're on their computer. That can be both good and bad. You know, you can like pour your heart out uh, in a good way to somebody, but you can also like say really mean shit yeah, with a feeling of impunity. And that sense, like no matter how hard we try to explain to him, you know, that the difference between private and public, it's just, it, and I think actually it's also something that as adults we really are not getting. You know, we know rationally that when we send out a tweet, anybody can read it, right? But it's still, I think it's just, there must be some kind of like self-protection that just makes you think, Forget that that it's public. That it's a broadcast. Yeah. Um, wait, like you, right now. <laughs> Shit. That's like that. Yeah, that basically sums up the entirety of my podcasting. <laughs> no one's listening to this. No, I've had people who actually listen to my our interview. No, I know people. I, I, I they are from, listening. I hear from people all the time, like in, in like all over the world. And I just yeah. I mean, now my parents are going to know. Actually, my parents aren't listening, and actually, they know I smoked cigarettes when I was a teen. I used to blame it on my friend Ryan. Plus, they owned a card and gift shop. Uh-huh. That was what they did for work, you know, but business. Because my father's English was so, you know, poor that it was either like, you know, do some kind of like manual labor, which actually I think he would have enjoyed much more. He's very physical and loves working. But they opened a gift shop on Long Island, and they sold candy and cards and like all that over the hill forties 
like kind of merchandise that now is appropriate for myself. Right. So I'm like, what? <laughs> that stuff I used to rearrange. You know, I'm over the hill. But um, and cigarettes. So I would occasionally take. You know. Of course. Bad and candy and also there was a comic book up book uh, store upstairs. So I would just read comics all day. That was kind of awesome. That's a good education. Yeah. Um. So are you, like, I guess like you finish this book, but you're not working on anything new. Like while you, well, do, the, while you do the book tour and, and like has Zoloft, I know you said it made you feel more like yourself and it helped with concentration. Uh, it's made you more productive. Yeah. I mean, I basically didn't, <laughs> I didn't. So I graduated from the I writers workshop in 2002 and then I started this Sacker Street Writers Workshop almost without knowing that I was starting something. I just put an ad on Craigslist. Oh, right. We talked about this. And so now, like, there's some, like, you know, Nicole Dennis-Ben up there. She was a Sacket writer. Like, there's a, you know, they re- they come to us already just great, you know, and mostly because of my OCD kind of set this bar very high because I taught all the workshops the first like five years and people were like these are workshops for this crazy woman it's going to make you work so hard on each other's critiques you know feedback so it's really now only now are we starting to have more like intermediate classes and we also have online classes now which is great exciting and then we're hoping to have classes in L.A. Um, partnering with somebody here, you know, um, who's already established in the community. And um, but, yeah, I didn't write for seven, maybe eight years. And most, you know, I was also teaching a lot, having children, running the business. But it was really, you know, mostly because I just didn't have the focus and confidence and um you know I my daughter my second child was born and I when she was like a year and a half I was making enough money through the classes that I could hire a babysitter and for like 20 hours a week which felt like yeah amazing and I joined a writer's space and I would go there from like three to midnight you know my husband did bedtime so he's like really become just he's like the best mommy in the world even though he works full-time but he's just great you know I I he is kind of in charge and um you know I wrote cutting teeth in like eight months because I just finally had this focus and I I'd always been a kind of a binge writer because of my upset you know OCD but um yeah, I mean, it's, it's you know, now I run, so the Sackett Street Writers has grown to almost more than 4,000 writers have passed through since 2002. Wow. That's a cool legacy, by the way. It is, you know, it's like, that's my life, life work, you know, like that's like what I'm most proud of, you know, um, and and also because my writing is tied to the Sackett writers, like, I don't know if I would have found that more substantial internal confidence that I needed to return to writing if I hadn't been watching all these 
writers who are like stay-at-home parents and MTA workers and accountants and lawyers and, you know, writing like it was their job, you know, even though they were doing a job somewhere else during the day, you know, so that was huge. But now, you know, it's, it's grown. So I really answer like a hundred emails a day. Like I'm doing a lot of administrative so, work. Yeah, you know, that's what's going to happen though. As the thing I got grows. an assistant. I'm trying to learn to delegate, but I'm so bad at it and it's hard to ask for help. But so writing the gypsy moth summer was in many ways like a bigger accomplishment because I did it while really working full time plus, you know. So this next book, I'm going to take a little longer to write this one maybe. I wrote <laughs> Gypsy Mall Summer like I'd thought about it for almost 15 years and had hundreds of pages of notes and was so informed. When I sat down, I knew the plot. There's a plot, which is amazing. <laughs> and, um, you know, so now it's it's fascinating how your writing changes with the your process changes with the phases of your life. You know, um, there's just no time to waste. So I think a lot before. So I have, like, I'm ready to write the book, like the big book about my father growing up during the war in Italy. My mother, who's Irish, um, first generation Irish American, she, her family is just, you know, a real like New York American dream kind of story. Um, and you know, my grandfather, her, the, the very charming one that the Colonel is based on in the Gypsy Mouse Summer, he eventually created a, um, electrical engineering company, even though he had no college degree and no, was not an electrical engineer. He was like, I'll do the PR hired an electrical engineer. And they ended up doing the twin towers and like all these like create so he he like literally came from nothing and and then that fort that money was just gone with one generation you know it was just this crazy american dream story so i think i'm ready to work on that book yeah that sounds you like know? a book right there um so i'm starting to think about the frame my father was a um the priest in his village who i'm sure he was related to he um was also the beekeeper and he taught my father how to keep the bees and you know they didn't have anything like special you know that there was no electricity there was no running water or so my father lately has been telling me about you know he's 82 now and he's been telling me more stories you know so he's been talking a lot about the bees and I've been doing like a little research and maybe coming up with a, with sort of a frame. Um, it was, it's pretty amazing. I mean, in, in to collect the honey, they would, um, they would drink a mouthful of wine and then spit it into the hive and get the bees drunk. Okay. Cause like that, you know, we had and a then hive. just grab it, the, the honey. Well, no. Cause like, uh, we had a hive up in a tree in our backyard. We had to get it removed cause the right. kids, and the guy showed up with a smoker. Yes. They smoke right. them to stun them. Same yeah. kind of thing. And then, then he just took a vacuum and just like vacuumed them I out. I know. I feel like getting the bees drunk is much more... Is spitting wine. More satisfying. It's, and it's so Italian. And... <laughs> I 
Just give them a little. Uh... <laughs> I know. It seems like a waste. I don't know. But I think, well, they made wine. That was part they, of it. They've their... got so much wine. But, um, but yeah, his, uh, it's a story. It's like so special that I, I, I didn't want to waste it, but I think I, I hope I'm ready now, but, um, I think I'm, you're ready. I'm, I have so, I'm like so behind on so many deadlines still for this book, like interviews and essays and it's a lot of work. All those written interviews. <sighs> See, this is, a well, lead. this is like a pleasure. This is a joy, but the right, you know, I think what, many people don't understand is that so many interviews are now done over email yeah, and not in a conversation form, which I like kind of the emailing back and forth in a conversational or like in an instant message where you're actually in real time typing. Oh yeah. I did that once with, um, I can't remember what the website is called, but it was fun. That's the way to do it. And it was kind of nerve wracking though. I don't know. It's better than email questions. Well, that turns out to be like an essay. Yeah, because you're sitting there like, well, I don't want to sound like It's so much like work, and because I'm obsessive compulsive, <laughs> I'm like answering like, they're like, thank you for this 17,000 word response, <laughs> you know? And then you're like, shoot, you know, you're like making more work for them, but... Um, well, they're making work for you. Yeah. Serves them right. I know. There's a couple of people I need to get back to. So Actually, there's like so many people I need to get back to, but... You're in demand. Yes, and that is a great honor and privilege. Yeah. My mom's always like, she has a, like a wicked Queen's accent. She's like, you wanted success, Julia. And I'm like, yeah, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> you got it. I'm like, <laughs> so uh, where are you spiritually? What's going on with you right now? Now you that you're in Los like Angeles. Location? No, just like, what, like where's, what's your worldview? What's your know. universal uh Vantage point. I don't think I believe in anything spiritual at all, which is just the sad truth. <laughs> I mean, I was raised like super Catholic, okay. like with the Jesus over my bed. Okay. But I prayed more out of like an OCD ritual kind of thing. Okay. And then I knew I was kind of like faking it because I wanted to believe because believing like that comfort, God, I would do anything to get that back even though i'm not sure if i ever really had it 100 percent. but then when i went to college you know i've always i mean it's pretty fascinating how we you know every every person has a different coping method right and it's the way in which they interpret the world and make sense of it and sort of like justify their delusions or their interpretation you know so for me, it's always been psychological, like just, you know, like the stuff that I went through as a kid in my home or outside my home that was traumatic. I always dealt with it through, I guess, like, I don't know, kind of like a, like a, like a sort of hyper empathic thing. Like, like if something someone did something bad to me or like my house was very you know dysfunctional because my parents really they're survivors you know of a lot I, I i was able to make sense of it but by by imagining what they were feeling or why which what is what made me into a writer um so for me that's that focus on psychology almost made it impossible to believe that there was anything but like man you know like desire fear that's it or just you know? animals or just yeah void 
but really complex and amazing. Like, you know, I have to say at least once a week, I'll see something, I'll see someone do something or like, even if it's something like someone walking by me on the street and like a little piece of dialogue that I overhear or like my children telling me a story or talking about something they learned or something I read. And I'm like, I'm like, man, like humanity is what a miracle, like just, I cannot believe like we have created the most beautiful, messy, like intricate, complicated society. And then Steve Bannon. And then you're like, (laughs) but you know that, like, it's almost like, so this goes back to the serial killer thing. You're probably almost done with me here. No, no, please. There's no rules. So when I was a kid, I was fascinated by people who did terrible things because I just couldn't understand. I couldn't accept that there were people like, I didn't really understand that there were people like sociopaths, even though it's on a spectrum. Right, right. I was just like, I don't understand. How could you, how, how could someone like Raskolnikov and Crime and Punishment, you know, kill the, his landlady and then think that he could control the guilt, you know, like I, I really needed to believe that everybody had a conscience and that there was some good. And I still kind of am working through that by watching a lot of serial killer shows. Yeah. So that, 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 (laughs) because I have the same thing and it really unsettles me to be confronted with people where that chip is missing. They just don't give a shit. They're just, they're just cold blooded. I almost can't accept it. Yeah. Like the first time, like I was in college and I read Othello and the professor was this like long white, like he had a long white beard. He like, you know, had horses in Virginia. Like he was just, such a (laughs) but he was so professor-ish, you know, he was just, and I like raised my hand. I was like, and it's funny because I wasn't a writer yet, but I was already starting to think about literature as a writer. And I was like, this Yago guy, I mean, he's just, He's just not believable. He's just too evil. Like I was like workshopping Shakespeare, <laughs> but I'd never been in a writing workshop. Right. And and this man looked at me, this professor, and he, it there was like pity in his look. He was like, oh, yeah. Well, you see, these people exist, and I was just like, ah. and 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 I just and part of it is that like the 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 trauma that I experienced like as a kid growing up in a house with you know you know my father watched his you know parents you know watched his like there was a lot of domestic abuse in his house growing up you know and so like there was some of that in our, our house too and the way that I survived was almost like through this forgiveness you know like oh well you know he must have been in pain, you know, and so which is a, true, right? Yes, that's why so, people when they're angry or they do yes. stuff, it's like they're hurting and they don't know how to, and it just like explodes out of them in some weird, awful way. And then it carried on into this, like, into reading, right? And then eventually into writing. Uh-huh. So, so I, like my, you know, my novels are like dark, <laughs> like I feel, and you know, because I'm a woman. You know, I get a lot of that bee tree stuff, which I'm like, yes, bee tree. That's awesome. Like I, you can categorize my books any way you want. If it's going to get me readers, cause it's such an honor. 
But I just imagine someone he's like, you know, women who just want to like chill at the beach and they're like, whoa, <laughs> like, God, you know, does it have to be this disturbing? And because my character, you know, I want to write those characters that are making decisions that are really testing their conscience, their faith in other people. Like it's, it's like you're at the beach, but it's like gray gardens or whatever. Yeah. You know, like this review today in the Chicago Tribune, which was amazing. She like got my book. She who, was who like, reviewed it? What was her name? Oh my gosh, I can't. I I can't remember now. Okay, because it just happened, and I just and you, skimmed it really fast. And you're not even sure if it was good. Like you don't believe that it was good, but no. But got... everyone else is telling me it's great. Exactly. They're like, this is what a writer dreams of. This review, and I'm like, okay. But and she she compared it to The Great Gatsby, which for me is like. Huh. You know. Can't beat that. And, um. You know F. Scott Fitzgerald died not too far from here. Really? I'm glad he died in California. He was Even here. Even though I have instructed my husband that if I die here, he must cremate me and sprinkle my ashes. In Lloyd Neck? In the woods of Long Island. In the woods of Long Island. Okay. And he was like, okay. I'm think like, the- I cannot die on the West Coast. <laughs> I think in our will, like I think I like, say, like you have to answer these questions. In I know your will. we got we do one of those too. And it was like, it was, and it was like, uh, like legal Zoom, you know. And I'm like, I was just like, sprinkle me somewhere beautiful, like figure yeah, it out. You're right. Just put me somewhere. I nice. mean, actually, like the beauty, the natural beauty here is, it's just unrivaled. I don't want to be. I don't want to be. I don't want to be buried in this town. <laughs> I be buried in the fucking desert. That is weird, though, that F. Scott Fitzgerald died in L.A. But then, of course, with his yeah, he, had he a was heart writing attack. for the film. Forty two, forty four, something oh, like that. And God, uh, I'm like so on my way there. <laughs> we, almost there. Weird bit Tomorrow, of trivia. I'm going to exercise. <laughs> weird bit of trivia, though, is that uh, I want to say F. Scott Fitzgerald lived in a building on Hayworth and Sunset. That's where he died, just below the Directors Guild. And the guy who owned his building was the last name of Culver, for whom I think Culver City was later wow. named. Yeah. I could be wrong, but I think I remember reading that. So That's so young. LA's got its own little weird literary history. Oh, it's fascinating. There's stuff going on here. I feel like it's amazing, you know, to move, you know, at 40 when, like, you've just been consumed by this idea that, like, New York is the place where people rewrite their stories you know, New York is the center of the American dream. And then I, and then to come to LA and be like, Oh, wait a second. Like this is literally where people rewrite their stories and has been since like the beginning. People, I I feel like people like you can say you, you can say anything you want about who you are. Exactly. That's what I, that's kind of what I was just going to say. And also I feel like people who don't know what the fuck they're doing come here (laughs) People who really think they know what they're doing yeah. go to New York and are like, I'm yeah. going to fucking make it. And in L.A., it's like, I know I want to do something, but I don't know what the fuck it is. Or yeah. I, I just want to get away. It's just pure ambition. It's get, you know. No, it's not even. It's like ambition, but mixed with like adventure. Adventure, something about the West, something about like. Yeah, the manifest la- destiny. The last place you can get to. Bottom <laughs> of the kind. It's like everything just sort of slides down into this corner. Yeah, New York's like full of fact checkers. Yeah, There's okay. no fact checkers in L.A. No. You know, like somebody's just like, this is who I am. And everyone's like, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> and then they just start spreading that rumors. And you're like, That's how you oh, build a brand. You know? Um, I feel like there's so much that's surprising here, like in terms of architecture and plants and 
people. And I mean, I don't know if that's just because everyone's more flamboyantly themselves. Like we were. We'll sprinkle a little bit of your ashes here. Like just like a, <laughs> just like a teaspoon. <laughs> but we, we were driving through, I think it was Brentwood. And there was this like just muscle man, like big muscles wearing a tank top. You know, but like kind of model-esque at the same time. And he was... Actually not even a man. (laughs) He was pushing one of those little like, you know, um, not tricycles, but like the the little bikes that the kids sit on and you just push it. Yeah. It was like pink and there was a little girl on it. And Uh then he had like a tiny bulldog on on a leash. And my kids had been talking about that guy. We just drove by him. Like, remember that guy? (laughs) And I was like, yeah, because he looked kind of like what you would see in like a Pixar movie. Right. You know, and he just was like, this is me. Do you want to know something crazy? (laughs) I went through this uh, like non-social media. I think I've talked about this on this show, but like right after Trump got elected, I like I dumbed down my phone and just like unplugged. Yeah. And I started this daily thing where I was just reading books and then like writing letters, blah, blah, blah. And uh, I wrote a letter to the CEO of Pixar after reading a book by him. And uh, just today, I got a letter back from him. He wow. wrote me back. Ed Catmull. Nice guy. I mean, there's some amazing, you know, like right now, Sing is my favorite movie. You know I, that Sing I, I, movie? I know of it. I haven't seen it. But then also is like, I love The Walking Dead, you know. Oh, so, f- fuck you that know. shit. And like Game of Thrones. I'm like, oh, oh July I don't 16th. Even know if I can handle it. <laughs> So I have this weird thing that I do where I don't watch the last episode of a season of a show that I really like until the first episode of the next season comes out and it drives my husband crazy. How do you, uh, the self-control. And actually I went to a reading that one of my former Iowa teachers was doing, Ethan Kanan at Book Soup. Uh-huh. And the guy who's, who created Homeland was there. And I actually can't remember his name because I know nothing about the industry. Yeah. And I, and you know, someone introduced me to him and I was like, I love Homeland so much (laughs) that I don't watch the last episode until the next season comes out. And he was like, that's very interesting, (laughs) crazy person. Yeah. Um, it's like, I can't say goodbye. That's kind of sweet. Yeah. Guess what? We're we're, we're saying goodbye. We got to say goodbye. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Julia, it's such a pleasure to meet you in person. Yes. Thanks for doing the show a second time. Wow, it's such an honor to be here. I feel like we uh, covered some new ground. I was very excited. Yeah. Um, And um, and especially to be able to do it in Los Angeles. Right here. Proper. Where it happens. Uh, Welcome to L.A. Congratulations on your new book. Best of luck on your next book. Thanks. All right, ladies and gentlemen, there you go. That is Julia Fierro. Her new novel is called The Gypsy Moth Summer, available now in a beautiful hardcover edition from St. Martin's Press. You can find her online at juliafierro.com. She's all over social media. She's got a Twitter feed, at Julia Fierro. She's on Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest. She might even be on Google+. Track her down. That was Julia Fierro. The book, one more time, is called The Gypsy Moth Summer. Thank you to Kill Rockstars, as always, for the uh, good music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget, this podcast is totally free and listener-supported. Every episode is free, almost 500 episodes free. 
There's also an official app. This podcast has its own dedicated official app, the Other People app. It's available wherever you get your apps. It's free, too. It, too, is free. Everything's free. The app is the best way to listen. You download it onto your device. New episodes automatically upload. You can listen to episodes uh, offline. You can favorite your favorite episodes. You can share, you know, everything. It's very easy. So let me scroll through my Twitter. What's in my timeline right now? What are people saying? Trump is steering us to authoritarianism. Love theme from the Terminator. I've been following these weird. I have, like I follow thousands of people on my other people, uh, you know, podcast Twitter feed, and I've somehow fo- started following these people who just tweet about relationships, like not their relationships, but just like relationships writ large. They just constantly tweet like relationship stuff from like a you know a kind of early twenties perspective or something. I want to vibe with you. I want to feel your energy. <laughs> I'm obsessed with this stuff. Relationship Twitter. I just jumped out of bed because a spider crawled only my, only, only my face only to realize it was my own hair. I know what you meant. Trump care. The fuck? Bunch of bullshit. People talk about the Myers Briggs personality type indicator on Twitter a lot. I feel like that gets a lot of it's got a lot of currency. INFJ baby. Kind of INFJ ENFJ hybrid. I'm right on the borderline of uh, I and E, as I recall. McDonald's has a lobster roll for $9? Seriously? Not to be judgmental, but does anybody try that shit? <laughs> From uh, Joby Grantham on my Twitter feed. Long-time listener of the program. Hello, Joe. I have not tried the lobster roll at McDonald's. I did not even know that it existed. Until this very moment. So, yeah. Country's fucked up. Government's fucked up. Holding press conferences in the dark. No cameras allowed. Like uh, like an authoritarian state. We should all be uh, very concerned about this development and agitating. I encourage you to agitate. Speak up. It's a whole bunch of bullshit. Me no like. I don't like that. So, I'll be back next week. Hopefully I'll get it all together for some sort of 4th of July episode. I'm going to create some podcast fireworks. (laughs) 